Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 194 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Um, a big thank you for, uh, sorry, to Nick Groom for coming on last week. Uh, psychotherapist, um, a man who's had his own traumas and from when he was young and he talks through that and talks into how he became a psychotherapist. Um, we talked a little bit about his kind of photography and uh, we got into films that <laughs> usually goes that way. Uh, but he was he was a brilliant guest. And yeah, go back and uh, uh, listen to him if you haven't done so already. You can support us on Buy Me A Coffee. Uh, the link will be in the description. This week's guest is uh, the director and screenwriter behind the film Hole in the Head. And his name is Dean Kavanagh. How are you doing, Dean? Hello, how are you, Derek? How's it going? I'm very well. You're the first person who has saluted me, which is very nice. <laughs> I won't be the last man. Well, no, to be honest, I'll take it. I'll take the first one. We'll see what happens. Listen, thank you very much for doing this um, on this Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, I'm very, very happy to to be in your company for this. We always start at the beginning, Dean, where we should begin. Um, can you give us a, a short history of your upbringing, please? Uh, sure. Um, I uh, grew up in a small village in the north of Wicklow called Kilcool, which is where they shot um, Glenrow. Ah. And yeah, <laughs> very important fact there. Yes. Like. Uh, so I grew up in, with uh, my mother and my father, and I have uh, three younger siblings, one younger brother, two younger sisters, and an older sister from my father's uh, relationship prior to my mother. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was, I was, I grew up with uh, the younger siblings there and uh Eventually, uh, we moved to Greystones. Uh, Greystones uh, voted the world's most livable community in 2004 by the Chinese or something. Your Great facts, your facts already are <laughs> exceptional. Oh, this is the way it is, you know. <laughs> um, but it was though. It was so bizarre that it was. Um, uh, but back then, I suppose Greystones was kind of different. I mean, I mean, like when you say Greystones now, people probably think, "Oh, very affluent kind of upbringing." It's like absolutely not. My granny died. We vampirically took the home. That's kind of what happened. And uh, when I grew up in Greystones, it was like, okay, you have the harbor, you've got the fishermen, you've got the the ocean, you've got the beach, you've got kind of the mountains, you've got the woods. It was kind of this everything. Mm -hmm. So it was a great place to kind of grow up. Um, And also, you know, there were a lot of fields there at the time, less so now. Now it's kind of like where there's green, the government kind of see green, if you know what I mean. And it's yeah. kind of just overdeveloped. But yeah, you'd, you'd smell shit on the fields. You'd know what you'd know what time of day it was, you know, which day of the week it was based on that alone. Um, and I went to uh, a school in Greystones. And then uh, I went to a secondary school in Bray mm-hmm. for six years. And uh, yeah, during that time, I suppose my parents divorced um and yeah and yeah it was interesting it was an interesting kind of it was a good childhood I think um it was lots of interesting funny stories like uh the school I went to in in, in Greystones right it was like it's a former Christian Brothers school actually my father used to go there um uh, he has the bruises to prove it now uh so when 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 I was going there you still had to call the male teacher's master which was so bizarre. And then the, the female teachers Smith, you know, and there were way more male teachers than female teachers. And I didn't think, I thought that was real weird. Cause I went to another primary school, as I said before that, where it was just sir and miss. When I went to secondary school, it was real weird because I was still accidentally saying master. And I was like Renfield in the class, you know, like <laughs> kind of, it was this immediate, like kind of bullying territory, but it was, that was kind of unusual. Um, and any other bizarre, I mean, <clears throat> Greystones has the father Ted cinema. 
you know, that that was there. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Greystones is kind of more interesting than I guess some people might have assumed be- before, you know? Because, like, I mean, the best place to live in the world. <laughs> in <laughs> According to these lads, like, we came over there, he'd never been probably anywhere else. and just yeah. said, ah, this is great, we won't go anywhere else, you know? But I mean, so, when you, maybe... <laughs> Dean, when you describe it, though, it, it does sound pretty good cool with, the, you know, the the woods, the sea, yeah. you know, it had a bit of everything that you would like. So I kind of, and fields and that, and it makes kind of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I mean, when you're making films and stuff like with that, um, you know, you've got every kind of background you kind of want, you know, so yeah, that, that was great. Right. Um, so coming off that, the other question we always ask Dean is, um, when did you first become aware of mental health? Um, well, I suppose I definitely was aware from quite young of the word mental and of the word health, mm. but very rarely was it in the same in in in, in the same phrase. Uh, like I suppose, uh, definitely uh, in my immediate family, people with mental health issues, um, people in my extended family, uh, my friends' families. This is even just growing up to like around nine or ten. I, I kind of noticed this, but you know, mental, like just taking that first part. Um, that was like a, in the nineties, a very bad or a very good thing. Yeah. If, if the word mental is used, you know? So I think when it came to stuff like the gray area of like, you know, depression or anxiety or anything like this, that wasn't really, you really had to be full blown mental mm. and everything else didn't exist. Yeah. So, um, it wasn't really something you would really see or hear about, you know, it was kind of you just that guy's mad or something and yeah. usually by the time he's defined as such he probably is at mm. that point um so and health was just you know doing 10 laps of the, of the pitch but i suppose um but when i look back on it there were a lot of things definitely mm. within as i said within my family and within friends families and i don't think it really dawned on me uh until i really went to secondary school that's when i could i kind of saw I saw um, it kind of affect people my age, I suppose, more. Yeah. Up until that point, uh, it was definitely watching grown-ups or adults dealing with these things. I didn't know what was, you know, it's just their personality or it's just their... But in hindsight, there were a lot of, you know, flags blowing in the tornadoes. Um, but in secondary school, it was interesting. Yeah, it was like um, substance abuse, um, like all kinds of things. I mean, just to say, I mean to paint the person before the landscape. Like, uh, I didn't really have a, a lot of friends when I moved to Greystones because, you know, like all my friends are in the other school and then you're, everyone's already made their friends. And But that wasn't really a problem for me. I was very much like, couldn't wait to get home to finish writing this thing or to shoot this little bit of the film or to beat my sister's home so I could take the dollhouse I was shooting a, a, a little animation in back to their room before, you know, they get in trouble and I wouldn't be allowed to use it again. So I was very much uh, kind of living in this kind of world that I built. And then when I got to secondary school, it was like, you know, kids were throwing chairs at teachers. At the time, I didn't immediately link this to like mental health at home or just the the family life. But uh, I mean, at this point, my parents had 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 split up. And so, you know, um, I was in this school pretty much because, (laughs) I mean, like we didn't have a lot of money. And my mother was pretty much holding the house together. I, I just had three younger siblings. And this school had like an amazing book rental scheme. I had a bunch of these other state supported, uh, I guess, kind of grants and supports. Um, but, you know, like kids would be punching in the lockers, taking your books, flushing them in the toilet, leaving them on the pitch, um, throwing milk on you or whatever. So yeah, I'd be going around, had, had all my books in my bag because you couldn't leave them in the, yeah. 
and the thing. And it was just these little incidents where you meet people, <clears throat> you um, you kind of go, well, this guy's stealing the books because, well, he if he goes home and tells his parents he doesn't have books, they'll, they'll, they'll beat him or something. Yeah. Um, or this kid is like, you know, drinking perfume or something. <laughs> There's a kid who drank perfume and fell over and hit his head in the basketball court. He's doing that because, you know, something happened and mm. he just couldn't deal with the day. And these are kind of things at the time you kind of, you were shocked by it. But I remember over time, even just before the junior started thinking like, okay, there's a reason why this is happening. And, and at this point, I think there was a really strong social education in the school. Like I said, it was, there were, it was a mixed school. So um, there was lots of, there was sex education and there was, uh, I guess, talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was oddly enough, <laughs> funny enough, that was done in uh, like a religion class, which is, which is hilarious. But um we had a really interesting religion teacher and she was, she was really, she was really hardcore. She was very much about, uh, I say more probably in the end, probably more spiritual than actually kind of within yeah. some kind of orthodox situation. But um, that was fascinating. And, and I think the kids, even though they were messing in a lot of other classes, they genuinely paid attention in that class, oddly oh. enough. So I think they were getting a lot of whatever was being said was of interest. I so, think, Adeem, like what, what you're saying about that, um, I've obviously asked this question to everybody that's come on, you know, about mental health. And I, I think a, a lot of people have said that they may have been, uh, may have had anxiety when they were teens and didn't know what it was. And that would suggest um, if you don't know what something is and you're feeling a particular something, you will try anything to get away from it and you'll try mm-hmm. alcohol, you'll try drugs. You might even try violence. You might try stealing, you know, all those kind of things. And I, it it's it's kind of there's a few different ways that I've been taking the answers to the question and try to think about like what what they mean. But one in particular seems to be that that kind of that teen thing about not knowing exactly what mental health is. So they're not able to yeah. point out how they're feeling and, mm-hmm. and then it leads into something else. And I think that's, you know, it's up to then to the schools now to be able to kind of get in there earlier and start to talk about it. And hopefully that is happening. I, I, I don't know. Um. But let's let's hope so. I wanted to go on because I because because your whole school is like, sounds like a, a made up uh, movie uh, anyway. Could, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, so yeah. But um, I, give me I, funding I, to make a kind of Dairy Girls North Wicklow. Yeah, there you go. We'll do I, it, like. I um I recently watched a terrible film uh, called The Fablemans. People will know what it is. It's oh, Spielberg. Spielberg film, yeah. So people loved it, and I just didn't get it. But what I did find interesting about it was the fact that you know. From such a young age, someone can be interested in um, not just, you know, the motion picture, but actually making their own films. And you already kind of touched upon that. What age were you when you started to kind of look at films as something that you could actually make yourself? Probably around 10. I'd say 10. Um, I just remember that's when we were we had access to a video camera. Um, I was shooting, I was at a wedding, my auntie's wedding, and uh, I was just handed the video camera so that the older people could socialize. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was given strict instructions, what not to film and what conversations, you know, to to, to avoid. And um, yeah, so I took this very seriously and I brought it home and I you know, connected it to two VCRs. I remember figuring it all out. It was a lot of it was in camera, but um it was my, my my father was also helping with some music. He was selecting the music they wanted over it. So we were using two VCRs to dub it together. And that was great. It was just a lot of little magic tricks and making people appear and disappear. And 
And at that point, I watched a lot. I was obsessed with movies by the time I was, you know, nine or 10. I was absolutely obsessed. Um, and so that was the kind of start. And I thought, OK, um, so I began to fixate because of that. I guess it's that, it's that line, of the Melies line of, uh, you know, within a single splice, you can create impossible or you can make the impossible possible. So it was really just focusing on that. And I was already interested in drawing and, and writing. And so stop motion animation was was the kind of thing I began to do because you could because my father was a photographer and and um he had taken uh one of the corrugated sheets off the shed so he had this kind of again Meliesian kind of uh natural light space and he had his own lights and I would just go down there and I'd do use his lights or use the natural light um and it really kind of developed kind of from that so it was always it's kind of funny yeah it, started, it began as a kind of solitary thing mm. and uh and then when it was when I was in my teens, when I had more, when I had kind of more friends, when I was in my teens, early teens, I suppose, it became a group kind of activity. And everyone I knew was kind of interested in films also. Um, and and then eventually when I really began to focus on it and ended up going into a for uh, toward a more experimental route, it became a solitary thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of it's interesting, this kind of the way it kind of moves around this kind of the way that I suppose the digital camera enables a person to kind of act on their own and to be as a, you know, as Kiris Dami said, to be like a painter and to, to kind of work alone. And that's kind of interesting, but yeah, growing up, there's a lot of stop motion animation and um, yeah, a lot of stuff like that, really. I would send, I would make these huge things. I'd send them off to my sister, you know, she was living in London. So she moved back to Dublin and she'd just arrive home and she'd have like a two hour stop motion feature with, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff going on in it. And she would, I would send her, I remember the talk boy things from like home. Yeah. Alone. I had one. <laughs> I had yeah. one of those. Yeah. They were <laughs> great, weren't they? Yeah, they were so yeah. good. <laughs> but who, who were you? Um, like when, you, like at that age, when you did start, who were you, who were you watching? Who was influencing you? Um, I think I remember the first film I ever saw was uh, Excalibur by John Borman. Okay. And then I saw uh, Mask of the Red Death, uh, the Vincent Price, Roger Corman film. And then Nosferatu and a bunch of other things. <clears throat> a big one was Terminator. Terminator 2 I was never really allowed to watch the first one. But uh, my parents were extraordinarily strict when it came to censorship. Oh. Uh, ridiculously so. Um, but Terminator 2, I remember my father was watching it one day. And I was just sat in the room and I got to watch Terminator. If I made a noise, he'd realize I was there. And then, you know, I'd be kicked out. Yeah. But um, he realized I was there and he was like, oh, this isn't too bad. It's just, he was just kind of blown away by it because no one mm-hmm. had ever seen anything quite like it. I remember that shot where like the T-1000 kills like John Connor's mother, stepmother. Oh, God, yeah. And yeah, sticks him to the wall with the... Yeah. I remember that and I remember that just happened and my father looked over at me you know he's like did he didn't Dean didn't see that did he and I'm just there like wide-eyed at the screen and I swear to god man my voice metamorphosed into that of like a 65 year old cigar chomping you know whiskey drinking lad at the bookies and I looked at him and I just said like play it again <laughs> and uh, yeah he just turned it off um but... <laughs> well <laughs> I I think of I I told this story before on here I'm sure of it but like I watched uh, Deliverance with my dad oh wow and there was a scene that I didn't get to see. All right. So he turned it over to the news or something, whatever. And um, mm. when I, a few years later, put on the DVD, I wish he was still around. I wish he was there to turn it off and put on the news. It's all, <laughs> you know, it's, you're, you're, um, you're saved these things for a good reason. And like, I don't, I know what mm. you mean about Terminator 2. Like, I remember watching it for the first time, um, with my two brothers and it was just like, 
insanity, really. Like mm. we'd never see, obviously we'd never seen anything like it before, you know, um, and probably have never seen anything like it since because I don't really keep up with the action kind of stuff. But I do remember mm. that film standing out for those moments of like the the special effects were just insane. Yeah, yeah. There was no you couldn't really think about how it was made. Like yeah. using computer generated imagery. I mean, my father would know, you know, darkroom kind of chemistry and tricks like that. And he'd be, but this kind of stuff was kind of far beyond. And we didn't have Photoshop at that point yet, even or anything. So, well, our family didn't. But that was kind of bizarre. It's funny what you say though about the deliverance thing. My this is this is very important. Maybe like that. I mean, I was obsessed with censorship mm. because my parents, whenever something was on TV, like you know, Die Hard with a Vengeance is on, and I want them to record it. And they're like, okay, but they would sit through it and they would stop the tape when something was terrible was happening and they'd press record again. If it wasn't too bad, I'd get to keep going. So by the time I saw like Predator or any of these films, they were like 25 minutes long because <laughs> they just jump cut everything out of them. Yeah. Um <clears throat> to a to a certain point where um I would get, if you remember the um the BBFC ratings from the British Board of Film Classification, there were kind of these big red 18s on a yeah. on, a, on a, a video case. It was kind of fascinating and terrifying but i would i would um obviously we just released them as they were but after a while the irish film classification office they would stick the blue kind of for the octagonal or something hexagonal kind of stickers over them and you could remove them with an iron with steam from an iron yeah. and i'd put them on the little slips and you get them with a blank tape these little sticker slips with the numbers and the yeah, labels. I remember, I'd put yeah. them on there and i cut the ones out when i started printing them on the artwork i would cut them out <laughs> with a craft knife and i swear to christ i would go to the video shop we had a chart busters we had an extra vision at one point we had two extra visions um and I would slip them under the cover, the spine and the front and the back, and I would just close it and the plastic would keep them intact. And I would just say, OK, I want to rent this with like aliens Genius. and also Teenage Mutants, Tinder Turtles. I don't know what is Revenge of the Ooze or something. Yeah. And we go, OK, we go up and before I hand it to the clerk, pop them out. He gives back the thing. It goes into a black, you know, the library case. Yeah. When they got rid of those, it went into a sheath. You just thumb the 18 cert. That was it. And Jeans. I never got caught, did that for years. Um, and I, I say this because I was recently moving and um, my stuff from my mother's house. And I found all these, this little baggie with all these little chopped up certs. Paraphernalia. So, yeah, bizarre. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, funny, yeah. when you moved like to the point of maybe having more confidence in your filmmaking, or maybe you always had confidence, but when you decided that I could maybe get something out of this you know actually get it produced um how did you go about that um <clears throat> well i suppose there was realizing that no one was going to help that it mm -hmm. was just going to be me doing it and um i had sort of sidestep that standard trajectory of you know short to short to feature and if your feature doesn't make it then you have one more shot and then if not well then you know think of something else um, because I, I was afraid of that happening. And also I really loved making shorts and I made a lot. I made like, you know, like in one year I made like 25 shorts. I, at one point I made like three shorts a week. Um, and it was, I suppose I might, I might be a little bit different to other filmmakers insofar as, um, I mean, I didn't have actors at a certain point. I didn't have crew or anything like that. There was no sound in some of the films because I couldn't afford or didn't have sound gear. So these films are really based around, I guess, my life and what was happening around me and trying to sell that or put that into a place was difficult because you had to focus on the form and if the form could be eye catching or it could be interesting in the way it's cut and the way it deals with these images. Then maybe there was a chance that people would be interested in watching it. And slowly, I suppose, 
subconsciously perhaps this kind of began to take shape and um i made a feature and i didn't send it anyway i think it screened once i think um it screened in in spectacle theater in new york thanks to donald foreman he screened it and that's the only time it ever screened and i made a, a you know i made a bunch of films that never screened anywhere i gave up submitting to festivals for a number of years um and i suppose at that point i had nothing to lose and i think that might be something that mm. maybe some people get it gets ahead of them like uh I had a friend and I remember him saying to me, like, uh, I don't know, I'm, I've finished shooting this feature, but now I'm not going to release it or share it with anyone because I don't really like it. And right. you have that one shot, you know, but um, I just think if you if you really look at what it is you're trying to do and, and the kind of audience you're looking at uh, sharing the film with, there's a lot of ways you as an individual, this is one person or maybe you've two people or three people, especially now at social media, you can really get this off the ground with very little money. Um, of course it helps to have money um uh and i have been doing this for 15 years without any money really though i've had some great support from the arts council of course but you know when it comes to telling you how to exhibit your films no one really there's no module in film school i went to film school there's no module in film school that tells you how to do that and that would have been far more interesting than some of the other modules i had to take but um it's it's hard to there's no kind of hard and fast rule i don't i don't think um don't give up would be the main thing become sort of a masochist in sort of a way that expect the failure and maybe you'll be surprised um but i remember the yeah the first it was for me was i suppose realizing that this stuff was in that this this kind of films i was making were perhaps more digestible in a situation that was geared towards experimental arts so uh that i always got a better response from the kind of films I was making when it was in that situation. If my film was playing by itself, <laughs> if my, if it was a feature, it would do pretty well. And if it was a short put in a program of shorts, what might have, what often happened was people would say, Oh, that's a little bit too narrative. That what was that narrative one there or vice versa in a, like a traditional narrative program. What's that experimental film doing there? So, I mean, I probably, I tried to go further into experimentation to find an audience that way. Um, I tried to go, I, I reached that limit and I was no longer interested. And then I just, the film Hole in the Head that I made was just like, um, I thought, okay, well, I'll just try and do something that is a mixture of both. Mm. Um, and I suppose, I mean, finding an audience was just down to the fact that there was enough narrative or enough drama or enough human elements for people to sit through it. <laughs> and to allow themselves to have the other elements be introduced to them um over the course of the 90 minutes or so um i guess i was thinking more in terms of audience before um i mean i was always thinking in terms of audience but but this time i wasn't just thinking about a room of stroboscopic flashing films yeah. i was thinking of like okay um i'd like to share something in a wider uh audience and kind of a broader sphere if that answers your question it yeah. probably doesn't whatsoever no it, do, it no it does it does and, and like because i want to get onto a hole in the head for people who don't know now I, I got to see it um uh, last week i think and i watched it one morning very early one morning i always get up early and i love to, i love to watch a film early in the morning because i feel like things are opened up I'm, re I'm able to take it in a bit more so i like you know the whole thing about narrative and experimental is 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 great about the film because it kind of it leads you to places and then it kind of stops you there and then you're like eh, well, 
and then you go again. I thought the film was absolutely brilliant for many reasons. And I do have questions about uh, the film and about the, 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 the story and where the seed for something like that comes from. Because I think a lot of people will think, well, I, maybe I could write a narrative film. Maybe I could write a story and we could, you know, make a film from it. And other people might think, oh, I'd be really good at the experimental side of things. But you're mixing the two things together. And I, I can imagine that's quite difficult. But haven't talked to you now for the last, whatever, 20 minutes. You've mentioned a couple of things that have are in the film. So obviously you do mix some of your life in there, like you said. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that all kind of adage of you write what you know, but mm. um, I guess it was, I, I didn't, like I was saying, I, I didn't want to, I was trying to find a way to, I was thinking if I was going to do another film, then I wanted to do one that I could share with a lot of people. And I wanted it to be, sort of about the experiences that I had making these other types of films. Mm. Um, and I thought that would be kind of funny and it would write itself. And it actually came, it was a, it was a short story I'd written a few years before. Um, I was writing a couple of them to potentially adapt as a full narrative feature. And like what you were saying about, oh, I would like to write a narrative. Or I'd like to write something more experimental. I suppose, I mean, I really tried to write this as a straight narrative because the story was a straight mm. narrative, but it was far more interesting to kind of lean into what I was doing before. And I think that gave it a little bit of a different kind of personality to other films that were out at the time. But um, it really just developed from that, from really bizarre experiences I'd had, not just in the experimental film community, but like, you know, I'd kind of been working in the film industry at large, like at, at various different jobs for probably around the same amount of time. And so a lot of mad people there as well. Um, so it was drawing from all these different kind of pools, but I'm glad to say, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you, you, you liked it and that you watch films early in the morning. I used to love doing that. Mm. I'd love to do that more. It it's is, great. it's true. It's like planting a seed and throughout the day you kind of think about it. And yeah, I really like, I really had to think about it. Like it, it was kind of a lead, lead me down different paths. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, like you mentioned, it's a great thing about watching early in the morning because you have that time. Like even if you're just doing something mundane during the day, you do have time to kind of think about it or you go for a run, you're thinking about the film. But like someone did ask me the, the following day after I told them about the film, I said I'd watched the film and you were coming on. They said, what's it about? Now, I don't want you to tell me what's it about, but I did not have a good answer. So like if you had to give like a brief description, you know, like a, like almost like a plot, whatever you call a plot headline. Could you give us one of them? <clears throat> sure. Um, well, the film was about a, 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 a young man whose parents disappeared when he was a, a, at the age of, of, of seven or so. And they disappeared in such a traumatic manner that he has no recollection of any of his upbringing. He has no recollection of what happened and he no longer has the power of verbal communication. And so he is now, as I said, like kind of maybe in his like mid to late 30s. And he is an amateur filmmaker and working in a uh, cinema so he decides to uh inherit he inherits the family home uh is his parents declared deceased and he moves back there hiring two actors one to play his mother one to play his father and he attempts to unravel what may have happened uh when he was a child using these this kind of fictional tapestry mm. and at the same time it adds the other question of is this guy really this person potentially is this someone who has heard about this and is like yeah. decided to walk into the situation 
so it never quite answers that in my opinion i prefer that yeah kind of and i love those films you know those films where people the kind of not quite home invasion but okay like there's funny games of course but like films like theorem by pasolini mm -hmm. where someone just shows up or visra q the adaptation of theorem when the guy just kind of introduces himself to his family kind of ruins their life or the shout uh that, that film um i, I love just this bought kind that of the, idea i just bought that the other day and i haven't watched it yet. i literally bought it the oh. other day the shout it's good it's incredible film really? yeah you got you'll love that absolutely yeah. um yeah, that's a that, that's a really interesting to what uh, maybe that's an interesting double bill. But um, <clears throat> yeah, no, the shout's incredible. Um, it's so terrifying in a really unusual way. Yeah. Um, and it lives up to the shout. You know, when yeah. he shouts, it it's kind of hard to describe. Yeah, good. But, uh, but but are you a fan of Monty Python? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 The and, earlier and the better. Like I, I hope you don't uh, mind me because I, I always worry about when people come on, artists come on, and I, I try, or maybe not compare them, but mention that there's, you know, I saw some line between the two, but there was a reel at the beginning when he's talking about his parents and his grandparents, and it was, it was very Monty Python esque and funny, like, and there is moments in that film that, you know. <laughs> There's the one where the main character has the, his, his replica or his doll or, you know, his, yeah, yeah. and he's walking like in the, the field and he's, he's after filming, you know, the thing around the stream and he's coming mm. through the, the, the rocks. And I'm thinking to myself, when's Dean going to cut this? Like, which, <laughs> at what point is this yeah. going to cut? But he keeps coming. Everyone and... watching that was thinking the same thing, probably. <laughs> Even I was at a certain <laughs> point. Yeah. But that's what makes it funny because the whole idea, I thought of me. Imagine you were in that field and you saw this yeah. lad kind of clambering over rocks with a with a mannequin of himself. Yeah, that you know, and it just made me think of that kind of Monty Python, those sketches that are just very um, seriously told, like that mm. real, like I mentioned, but they're very funny in the content. Mm. Well, like it goes to like even the what's the long take uh, and the meaning of life. He's like, follow me this way, this way, and it just—it's <laughs> right. kind of funny. It's a total yeah. segue, a literal segue. But um, it's funny. It, it gets funnier somehow. It had developed its own kind of mania. Yeah. This is, and, and in that particular shot that just goes on for a very long period of time, I just thought I, you know, if every time I showed it to someone when I was cutting it, it just became funnier they would laugh like two or three times, maybe yeah. not very loudly, but just kind of smile or something. And it had, it had something about it. Like you say, if you're just sitting in the field and <laughs> eventually it just walks something, I don't know, maybe it, it's a specific type of, of humor, yeah. but um, yeah, I thought that was quite fun. And the, the opening stuff is, yeah, that's it. That was a, those kind of kind of personal histories and mm. family stories. They're always uh, laced with so much, yeah. you know, I mean, even just oral histories sometimes are extremely funny in a very peculiar dangerous kind of way yeah uh, at times but yeah that was yeah, i'm glad you found it funny it is it's supposed no, to be funny but a it very is particular type it is funny it's it's the 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 uh, john is it john Devereux? james Devereux. james uh, Devereux. Yeah, apologies yeah. uh james but uh he was playing the piano and that devil's chord you know the the oh yeah the tritone yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. tritone and he's speaking to the the sound guy and it's just this like the, it's the it's the reaction from the sound guy to him mm -hmm. saying like what are you telling me what this are you, like, <laughs> you telling me this story? exactly like it's just you know, these people that are i don't know like the what, what i what i really enjoyed about like spending time with those characters just even on paper was that 
um, you you enter the story at a certain point towards the end of their time with mm. John in this house. So like tensions are kind of fried and it, you know, they've become casual in their, they're just like, and how they dress him down sometimes or how they yeah. ignore him. It, it, it's so, it's at that point where things are going to fall apart. So this, this sound guy is just, you know, I've been in those situations where someone's just, you know, on commercial shoots, especially where they're trying to do something and you're just like, dude, I'm just trying to get wild track or I'm just trying to <laughs> exist here for a moment. Yeah. And you know, this guy's trying to keep his energy up or something. And you know, it's just, it's quite funny. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought yeah. it was brilliant that the reaction and, and I have to say everybody was brilliant in it. Um, is it difficult for, for John Curran to play a, a, a role that there is no speaking person because it becomes a different kind of acting then altogether, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, about John, John's a comic mastermind. I mean, anyone is listening to this who has met John or knows John, he's extremely funny. He's extremely clever. I mean, he's done improv comedy and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and uh, a talented drummer and talented sax oh. player, in fact. Um, and even at some of the Q&As when he was there, I mean, it was just it was great to see the, have the audience see him as, you know, as John rather yeah. than as John. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> which was quite complicated, actually, having everyone's name be the same. Mm. You know, James is James, John is John. It was actually, yeah. And then just there was a load of Johns. It was like three other Johns. And they're all in the room at the same time. And um, all playing, some of them playing Johns. Yeah. Um, it's, you made I, it you know, easy, really, on yourself, didn't you? I'd, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it just seems so Python-esque now. And you, you, you mentioned <laughs> that the whole thing was like, John, no, not you. But um, <clears throat> yeah, John is, we had a long, there was an original treatment where john would speak and then we it never made it to screenplay it wasn't it was just difficult to find the character the character was too present um he was supposed to be kind of watching he's kind of a voyeur but participates um and then there was the idea of sign language but we really wanted john to learn sign language but then at the same time it was wanting to have a voice a kind of sound that would reverberate around the room um and we came to the conclusion that he should have a kind of speak to text device Mm. and john was very very happy with that as he has admitted on several occasions he didn't have to learn the lines um (laughs) they were all pre-programmed and he would just okay but john john was um involved in where the stresses and and kind of parts of pauses and, and the speed at which it would play back certain words and certain lines and so he had great fun with that but um I've worked with John a couple of times before, like over the years, and, and he's produced one or one of my films in the past. And we, we just knew each other very well. Mm. So it was just we had a total shorthand when it came to, to making this. The first time um, we heard his voice um, through the through the device, it's it's again, there's a lot of humor in it because it comes so quickly. That you're mm-hmm. thinking to yourself, how did he have that answer ready? Yeah, because yeah. obviously you're thinking like, you know, text to speak devices is one thing, but there's a there's a pause, obviously. Mm. But in one and, and in a couple of um, times there probably is, but it, in the first one you hear, it kind of comes out of nowhere and you don't see the device. Yeah, you just kind of hear it kind of clacking and you sort of just staring directly yeah. at like the line. Yeah. I thought that was really funny. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's and it, it look again, and that's the thing that I really enjoyed about his performance is the deadpan, uh, you know, mm. and I know that that's what the role, you know, has to be because of, of what he's trying to figure out or if mm. he is trying to figure it out and all those things. Mm. But there was just the way he was able to 
deliver those lines and in inverted commas, but he did deliver them. But you know, in that way, I I, yeah. I absolutely loved. Um, I really liked the the use um of the home movie as a as a plot device, and this was obviously something that you we've talked about already. Um, were into anyway, so it seems mm-hmm. like a natural fit. Yeah, it was absolutely. It was like you know, I've worked a lot with found footage. Uh, in the past and I've used a lot of my own family's found footage or stuff that I've shot of, of you know um, so it, it was just it's a weird way of creating this fake archive this kind of false uh, personal history for the character and, um, and the fact that even with the with the added layer that it, it might also be faked yeah again there's that kind of denominator there that could be quite frustrating to some people watching it but I think it, it, if it doesn't frustrate you, then it, it'll pay off. But um, yeah, I, I really wanted to use these formats in a way that that had a narrative purpose. So, um, you know, I, I kind of assigned them different characteristics and different behaviors. You know, like one format is the the film that John is filming. Mm-hmm. And one variant of that format is the incomplete version that we kind of cut away from. And then an, another format like tape is home movie and then Super 8 is home movie. And and then the old photographs, a lot of them were doctored, um, mm. you know, Photoshop and stuff like that. And then re-photographed and reprinted. And um, so I suppose having each, Im- each kind of moving image format, even sound as well, as a kind of with a narrative property, that no matter if you were to push the visual aspect of the film, you would simultaneously be driving the the story and if you were to push the story element it you know it connects with the visual or the sound you're driving the kind of experimental aspect simultaneously as well and it was just creating that way that these formats aren't just there as a choice or or just a texture a lot of the films i've made they have a in some cases they have a, a dominant textural quality your sense uh, i guess in terms of sensory cinema a kind of quality that wouldn't be linked explicitly to narrative but in this case i really want it to be a handshake between narrative and and form mm. and so they do have a purpose so when you do cut away to i don't know like one of the shots of whatever john's doing um or the when they're just dancing in the garden or the, the typical kind of home movie stuff i've seen um that's in the film it does bring you further along in the plot that you're seeing something that's connected to something that there is information that's useful. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, a flight of fancy. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that was the decision as part of the way the film was kind of built, that it would be, it would have a purpose that these images and these choices of format did have a narrative value, I suppose. Um, and it's a, that's a really fun playground to be in um coming from my background in experimental film um uh, that you can just you have a purpose there is a narrative purpose so i suppose the stuff i've written in the past is just you know it's just i could never translate it into cinema because obviously you didn't have the means or whatnot but finally there was a moment where i combined both of these two things where the visual um, techniques that i'd built up over you know like 70 films um so, so, so suddenly that kind of grit connected very well with the narrative idea. And so it, the film really just kind of came out of that. But yeah, for sure, those formats, it was great. And the actors were using them as well. That was another important thing that a lot of the couple of sequences, their actors are filming themselves, filming each other. Um, and that was exciting for them to do. 
they're no longer, you know, staring down the barrel of a gun. They're pointing it back at me or, or at each other. And I think uh, they had a, it was very invigorating for, for them to do that. And um, to place that within different parts of the schedule was a great way. I mean, our, the producer, Anya Mahler, we were looking at the schedule and it really kind of brought them back to life. You know, it's, it's long days. It's, it's a very low budget. It's during COVID and there's no reception. There's no hot water actually for, for a lot of the time we were there. And just these little things placed throughout the schedule really helped kind of re-energize, I thought, the performers. Um, but yeah, for, format's hugely important. In fact, um, I'm actually an archivist. I'm a, a film and digital media archivist. Oh. And uh, I have a lot of friends uh, in, in that industry as well. And so I really have a kind of forensic fixation on different formats and different eras and different types of tape and different types of of uh of that of that kind of that kind of stuff so which is the film yeah it came out of that but it's you know for for someone like myself to see the it's almost like a look behind the curtain whilst you're watching the film and it's a it's a kind of you know it's a it's a weird it's weird to see there was a couple of things that that really kind of stood out that weren't I guess, well, one was kind of a spoiler, but it's not really a spoiler because we've kind of discussed it already. But when we find out that this isn't his parents, because you're, you're, you're watching him initially like a home movie anyway. And, and at the start, mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. you can see his dad and his mom and inverted commas. And, and then it kind of go, you're, it's, a, it's more than, um, it's more than just a shock in a film. It's like, Oh, the whole thing isn't, I'm only like 10 minutes, 15 minutes into this, and the whole thing isn't what I thought it was at all. Because I literally, I didn't want to go in. When you gave me the film, I I read on IMDb the the literal sentence. I didn't want to go in and start looking at things because, you know, I wanted to kind of get my own fresh take. But that in itself is is like looking behind the curtain of a film because it's, it's, it's so, it's such a strange turn. And, you you use again this kind of um you know the burning celluloid and and this kind of stuff which is on screen looks amazing. I know you did the cinematography for it as well, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm kind of going all the way all over the place with this one, but the because I wanted to kind of touch on all those kind of different things, like the the idea of a, a house as a character, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, I love that, that stuff. I love that. Yeah. Stuff where a house as a like a, a lot of these the, the like the. Polanski films where it's just pretty much a single location drama it's just great you know a room with no one in it and suddenly have this crazy you know dramatic potential there's just nothing but this room and some rain and something that's that's for me that's like I could you know and I do I have like loads of ASMR videos saved where I just like watch like rooms and sounds but I think yeah in movies it's I love stuff that's set in a specific place like even like stuff like Gosford Park Mm. uh, it's just going from room to room yeah it's I love this where all of this is reinforcing the drama that's kind of around the characters and it's you can look any part of the frame and there's something kind of happening whether it's static or it's in motion and yeah, yeah like I think that you know that whole thing when John almost gets out of his it's like this dreamlike venture out of exile you know and I know he has the he has his job and stuff like that but all of a sudden he leaves the house and it's on roads and you've got closes up of John's face and everything's kind of trippy and then you're kind of thinking well I was fooled earlier with the whole, you know, that's his parents, it's not his parents. Am I, am I being fooled by that? And I, I love that in films anyway, because mm-hmm. it kind of the, the idea that 
you're not quite sure what's going on. Nobody, well, maybe some people like to know exactly what's going on yeah. right from the film, but I don't. Say, yeah. You know, I like to go like something like Mulholland Drive. I still don't know if I got that film at all, but I love it. Like, you know, yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Or like in an empire or something. Yeah, yeah. it's it's like I you said it earlier on, like you you like when you don't give the ending there for someone on a silver platter. Yeah, I kind of like the audience to be active and to kind of work Mm. for it. But then at the same time, it can be frustrating when they work for it and there's no here are all the answers for your exam. You know, you'll get your grade now. It's like film for me, it, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. And I guess the kind of film the hole in the head is, like I said, in the first 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so, this idea of what you think is going to be the film is not the film. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy that. And then as you say, towards the end, where you think, is this just going to be another one of those things, uh, like a fake? Um, and then we don't quite resolve it. There's kind of a hint at the end, which is kind of nice, kind of an emotional kind of hint at the end. But um, it's about the journey. I think if you've mm-hmm. sat through that much of the film already, I don't, and I've watched audiences do it. No one, if you're going to walk out, you're going to walk out after the 10 minutes when they yeah. realize this is not what the rest of the film is going to be like. But um, <clears throat> that, no one's going to walk out at that point. You're there for the ride. You are there. You have gone through this trauma, this uh, kind of sensory overload. And you are just, it's almost, I, I've described it in the past as like the kind of trauma of the character or, or the, the kind of journey, the the dramatic, I suppose, arc the character kind of has dissolved, it kind of has been on, is now put upon the audience. Mm-hmm. And it's now your problem. Yeah. And now you've you've gone through this experience, you don't know how to deal with it. And and there there can't be kind of a, a black and white conclusion. Um and so if you're up for that, if you're up for a bit of divilment in that regard, then I think it's kind of the film for you. And you know, um I've met people who said that they did not think they would like it whatsoever. Mm. And they came out the other side and like, I was really surprised. And it's usually like you were saying, you know, it's like, if you give your, if you give into it, if you, if you watch it at the right time and the, of, of your day or, or whatever, um, you can be rewarded by that journey. It's not always about where you go, you know, that cheesy phrase, but yeah. it's like, you know, how you get there and, and where you don't end up, I suppose yeah. in this case. Um, yeah, I think, it's different in many ways to other films in that it, regard. Like, you know, I would say watch it on your own too. I have this, uh, and this isn't a dig at my dad, by the way, but, but I remember watching uh, <laughs> Memento with my dad and I had seen Memento before and I, I really like Memento. And my dad went to the toilet a couple of times. <laughs> it's like, you can't go to the toilet in that film. You will. <laughs> Listen, Pierce, you'll just have to wait until it's over. Cause, yeah, yeah, hang on there. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't tell you what happened because you're still not grasping that this isn't going the way normally a normal film goes. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, she? Yeah. she? Why is he talking to her? Like that's, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I think if someone left this film or if someone was beside you in the film, which would maybe be even worse saying, what, what, what was that again? And then you get lost because you're, because they're lost and you don't want to get yeah. lost. So, and, um, I, I, like I, I did mention already the cinematography. I, there's something, um, well, it's really beautiful, but, you know, within the house as well as outside of the house, because I think it's not true that people can just point a camera and in Ireland and it looks great because that's not a, a true statement. Look, we do have great landscape. Row, for example, man. Well, <laughs> there you, yeah, but they had a yeah, they had a great landscape there in Wicklow. Um, but you know that the idea of um, people think of cinematography as landscapes and and vistas and all this kind of stuff when there's so much more to it, like within the way you use it within the the projector room or the way you use it in the house um how does how do you, 
for for people that don't know, how do you know what a good shot is? That's a very good point, actually. I, I never thought of it that way. Um, I suppose it's maybe it's just like a feeling. Yeah, it's like it's like a feeling of what you think. The way I've I still make films, I suppose, is that it's an image kind of appears, whether it's in your head or you you shoot a bit of test material or something, and you find a, an image, and somehow the rest of the film, this image becomes very important, and it kind of dissolves into the rest of the film. It disappears. It it doesn't often make its way into the film, but it has such a profound effect. It could be an unrelated shot or a certain way of shooting something, and I think for me, it kind of re it kind of it seems to to kind of pollute the rest of the idea before it's even shot. And I suppose that's a weird way of answering your question. I don't really know what a good mm-hmm. shot is. I just, it relates back to that image, the image that's in your head. Um, in some cases, to be totally blunt, um, to be very non-philosophical uh, about it, if uh, I mean, it's whatever you can get. I mean, yeah. shooting in the projection booth, we do you, I mean, I wanted to keep that focal length. I didn't want to go too wide. Um, and because that's the only part of the stuff I could light. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was why that was shot that way. And then the reverse, that's because I, I have to match and there has to be information that, that, that is exchanged between both shots. And then that was pretty much it. I think the film really had this very stripped back um, idea of camera movement, when to move, when not to move, how to frame. Like everything is pretty much framed the way you are there. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, probably a bit more like uh, my thing, like just like character in the center staring just slightly off. Yeah, kind of like this. It's not the yeah. usual shot, reverse shot, but all these small things that you're kind of trying to make it somewhat interesting for yourself. Like, yeah. I'm not particularly madly keen on doing over the shoulder shots. Um, and when you don't do that, you have to be really careful about the size of the person in the center of the frame. Like if you were to cut from for example, me to a shot of you in the exact same position as me. If you are anyway, if the camera's closer or further mm-hmm. away, uh, it won't cut, it'll jar and it'll okay. distract. Um, so all these little things were, that's why the whole thing was storyboarded. So it was storyboarded with these limitations in mind. So the lenses were chosen based on uh, that storyboard and based on what I had. And also the the way th- certain rooms are framed is because that's the only way we could really logistically, in that amount of time, frame them and light them. Um, uh, I th- I think the only song to finish uh, a film like Hole in the Head is uh, is My Old Man's a Dustman. <laughs> um, can you explain that? Maybe it's one of those ones that you don't <laughs> explain. Um, I just thought it was just oh, as a there's a lovely nihilism in it yeah there's something that's just just fucking horrible and i like lonnie donigan um i grew up my father was a big fan of his his stuff and um so when it i didn't know what to use and then i was just actually just listening to a bunch of stuff and i came across a mix cd and i put a bunch of the tracks on and that was that was the one i was like well that's the that's the track and uh that was it. So that was how that was. But I love stuff like that, you know, like, um, uh, Killer Joe. Yeah. I mean, I only just I saw it when it came out, but I only just watched it again recently, um, just before Freaking Died, actually. And uh, it's that piece at the end where he has the um, stroke and mm. that song plays yeah. just at the end. It's just 
it's so joyous it's so absolutely horrifyingly nihilistic just the use of it it's a you can really see the director's hand like you can see that was a decision and it's also kind of beautiful because i mean it was almost his final film in a way um yeah. Uh, and I suppose that kind of power when you have something so intense and then you just have this Lonnie Donegan song or something. It's I am kind of, um, like, I, I think it's great. I just, it, it came as another shock, you know, it's like, sure. and that is a good point about Killer Joe. And there's, there is a, like a number of films that um, maybe go out on something that you're, you're not expecting. And it, yeah. it doesn't always, it can be the opposite of, it'll be like a comedy film goes out on something quite slow. It can be, the, you know, the other way around, something serious yeah. goes, and it doesn't have to, yeah. you know, they, that's the whole shock in it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's cool. But it, it was just, oh, that was, that's another uh, twist. Of what I was <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that landed well. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, it, what do awards mean, Dean? Are they, are they important? Um, to me, not so. I mean, you're talking to a guy who didn't send his films to a festival for like, you know, a great number of years. I genuinely don't. I'm talking really... to an award winner, though. Yeah. So, uh, uh... I, I, yeah I genuinely don't really care so much. But I think it's great that the if it's a way for the film to get seen, yeah. and if it's a way for the, the work of the people who made it to be, I suppose, um, shared with other people and to be appreciated then i think it's it's very uh useful yeah but beyond that not so you know if it's an award like an award of money which i could use to make something else uh, yeah. then that would be great but um yeah it's it, if it helps push the film along on yeah. its journey because uh it's as you we were talking a little bit earlier before i went on a wild tangent um that it is so difficult to there's so many people making films. There's so many people creating videos and creating content and creating noise. And it's just so much out there. There's so many different ways to see it. Um, how do you make, how do you get people to see your yeah. your film? And maybe if you get some awards or if you have people say that, go see this film, that hopefully people will. And that's, yeah. um, that's the hope. Um, obviously no one wants a terrible review. But sometimes, I mean, you can get a real nasty review. Like I have one fucking terrible review and I use it on the trailer. I use it on the (laughs) website because it has a couple of great lines in it. Yeah. Like the guy writing it thought it would be, this will take this guy apart. And I'm going, this is the best review. I I love that you've written this. You know, it was just absolutely perfect. Um, So yeah, it just depends on how you use it with the ultimate goal being to share the work as wide as, as possible. And with a film, I suppose, like this one, it it does have a limited, a potentially limited market because, or not even market, but just audience because yeah. you know people think oh experimental film is just you know, I don't know a cement mixer on fire for twelve yeah. hours shot on fucking Betamax or something which you know I would love to do that um, and yeah. that's the next project in time. <laughs> I'd watch it but, or yeah, yeah I totally <laughs> would um so it's really hard for people to to because experimental means absolutely anything yeah and nothing at the same time and so it's hard to convince people that this could be interesting, that you could give this a go. Um, and people, as I said, it's like a fast food kind of place where, or it's like, it's like anything. Like there's so many restaurants or places you can order food on or make food. And it's like, there's so many options. Why should I give my 95 yeah. minutes to you um, who have never heard of? And it's, it's experimental. And, you know, so 
It's funny the use of that, though, isn't it? The way experimental experimental is used now, because, you know, the great filmmakers were experimental, like Orson Welles is doing stuff in Citizen Kane Mm -hmm. that nobody had done before. Absolutely. But but now it's used as kind of uh, this kind of um, twee or, or, you know, the other rather than the stuff that, you know, it's strange. It's yeah, it's one of those words. Um, Even when I was, I mean fully kind of integrating into that into that area and and screening i mean i guess i never really used labels it was just only if it was useful for me to get money to make the thing or to get people to see the thing and i'd rather if you know 15 people who are into experimental film saw it than five people from traditional narrative cinema saw it and hated it so sometimes it's very good to have like a kind of a category but yeah i suppose it depends on who's using the phrase some sometimes people can use it to kind of snark or to be yeah. down putting or something but experimental cinema as you say it has a, a long and incredible legacy that goes back into you know into the silent era i mean the very first films are all in many ways i suppose ethno kind of scientific endeavors and they were all experiments and mm-hmm. the further i went into experimental film even just watching it every time i would end up in the silent era anyway so it all goes back to the beginning of cinema and to the mechanism um of of the, of the the cinema apparatus, both in viewing it and and in in making and shooting film and or video or whatever, the kind of the machine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. I watched I watched um, Hitchcock's The Lodger this morning. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, and for people who don't know, this is one of his silent films. I think it was maybe twenty nineteen twenty seven, but. Um, that was very experimental in itself, the way it used color, because, um, you know, like it, it, um, obviously black and white was in use then, but he used specific tones and colors for for mm-hmm. for certain scenes. Now, I've gone on record a number of times to say that my color, uh, I'm not very good at um, seeing colors like I'm not colorblind, but I'll see a green. No, not even that, because green red is one of those things. But if you said to me, what color is this thing? And it might be blue, but I, I mightn't quite figure out what the color is so i'll have to make up something or right. and or else say is it cyan and i hope for the best yeah. it's not that's so i when i'm looking at these things i'm like i wonder what a normal person is seeing in these pictures but i i i thought of it you know obviously with you coming on and me seeing that this morning of even then they were they weren't just um shooting in black and white they were still doing stuff that might be interesting to the viewer uh, and with colors and and techniques hinting and yeah all that yeah. kind of stuff even there's like er- earlier films you know like from the like the, even the like the 20s or even I mean, I can't quite remember the first film they used tinting, but I mean, I've seen stuff in the Irish film, uh, kind of the archive of Irish cinema where you know people were not just tinting, but I mean, like. Uh, mid twenties, and they're like painting. You know, they filmed a, a scene of a fire erupting. You know, and they're they've painted the flames in each frame, mm. you know, yellow, red. You know, and they're and green. And you know, they're this this uh, this added moment of of kind of danger or the way in which Hitchcock used color throughout yeah. his career. Anyway, I mean, but yeah, that's so it's so important. Um, what color, how it affects you, and how your brain decodes that information, or how mm. I suppose media conditions you to feel a certain way towards a certain color or yeah. whatnot. But very interesting to if, if someone is colorblind or someone doesn't have that association, I find that fascinating because I have a couple of friends who I have two friends who are colorblind, and uh, I did a film with. Um, 
Anaglyph 3D. And they, I remember selling them the glasses and everything. They were very curious to watch it. And they, yeah, they, 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 they couldn't really, it didn't work for them. Um, oh. And then other experiences where they were watching films, like you say, with tints. And it just, or it could be very subtle things. Like, for example, in a technical, like digital cinema in presentation has operates in a different color space to like what this computer RGB rec 709 color space. It operates in an XYZ kind of color space. And to spot the difference you can do with your naked eye, mm. there's usually no red and they were unable to QC with their eye because they couldn't, they couldn't see that. So they would have to run it through a, a software to detect. So that th- these kind of things are fascinating. Yeah. Kind of what the brain eliminates or can't process well, um, to you, Dean, I'm I'm glad you appreciate this kind of stuff because I get laughed at and I get that. Well, what color is that then? And what color is that over <laughs> there? Like it's no color, all right. Um, but it's, that's they're my own issue over there. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah, but uh, so apart from the cement mixer on fire, what is next for you? Um, well, the cement mixer on fire is next. Yes, I'm looking I mean, forward. No, to it. Um, well, I'm trying. Currently, I have a project in early stages of development and trying to find money to make it. Basically, financing mm-hmm. is trying to make it uh, happen, um, which is extremely difficult. It's as difficult as getting a film scene. Mm-hmm. It's just a constant. You're in a constant wrestling match from the second you write the idea down to when you're trying to get people to sit in front of it. Um, so we're trying our hardest to get money for that and again i suppose it would be more uh, i would uh, maybe a step further into narrative but still it would it doesn't leave the kind of the the work i've been developing this this it's just a little bit further i mean for me it's it's always interesting to do something different so of course yeah, um, yeah. the point of that film was to do something different and now i want to do something different again um to make it interesting or else what's the point of doing it yeah i, I agree um so, so we always ask this question as well dean like what do you like to do in your spare time i like to um what do i like to do anymore i don't even know anymore um what do you like to do in your spare time actually maybe this, know, this will help me yeah no do you know it's funny because everybody kind of stumbles on this one and i'm and like as soon as someone probably because i ask the question all the time but i love films obviously yeah i love music i love playing instruments musical instruments i love to okay. read i do jujitsu mm-hmm. i do crossfit i very cool run i that's probably it actually all those things yeah that's so, a lot it's that's a lot a, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah that's good yeah, but i'm I mean, not um, i'm not out there trying to finance films you know what i mean it's not the same thing <laughs> Maybe you could like drop all those things and help me finance this. <laughs> Tell you what, that uh, that you got yourself a deal. I get very lazy <laughs> and just do that, but but I I do um yeah I think I think it's, it's hard good to, to have be... something else to 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 do that's not yeah. what you're yeah like a, a diff like a a palate cleanser. But but you're I mean, yeah, like yeah. But you're writing and directing and trying to get the finished finances. So it's it's a lot of things on the same, right? It's it's making yeah. films, but it's a lot of different things. Different things. In yeah. making. So I can understand when people come on and they go, I don't know what, they, you know, yeah. but they might go away from it and go like, well, I really like going for a walk. And, you know, it might be just something simple yep. like that. No, I I, I uh, remember the rowing club. I row. Ah, there you uh, go. I climbing. I read a lot i look at this see you didn't have any answers yeah i didn't i didn't think this is i don't think it's something that was what do i do (laughs) these are the things that you know what what's probably what's terrible is i'm probably thinking about the other thing when i'm doing those things that's when am i yeah so uh, 
So maybe I should try and do harder things that I can't think about anything other than the activity I'm doing. Jiu-jitsu is the only thing I can think of that that uh, falls into place. People are bored of listening to me uh, talking about it, but you go and get when you're sparring with someone in jiu-jitsu for those five minutes, oh, you, yeah. you don't remember, you don't think of anything or you don't worry. I don't have anxiety, uh, nothing. It's just yeah. literally I have to yeah. choke or get choked. One or the other. <laughs> this is what it boils down to like. You know. hey, this this is this is actually really this is really important um yeah being able to plug out of of, of yourself for a while yeah i yeah, think i think that's a really important thing yeah and i think but like when you think it is something like rowan and look i've talked about regards to running and not thinking about you know anxiety or other mental health problems that i might be having mm. at the time um you know like you said there it's important to be doing the rowing and actually just be doing the rowing or taking in what's yeah. around you, you know. But it's actually quite funny, yeah, that, that I guess if you get into a rhythm, you don't need to think about, yeah. with rowing, it's kind of funny, like the second you start thinking about the different things you're doing, you start messing up. And then when you start thinking too comfortably about not what you're doing, you mess up. Yeah. So there is a kind of fine line. But running, yeah, I do running, but uh, I think a lot. I used to play music when I run. Um, and I don't run anywhere interesting. <laughs> I'm grim. Like I would just go like I'm right near Phoenix Park, you know, yeah. like so I could I could find something. I go to a football pitch, a big rectangle, and I just do laps of it. Like because if I'm running, I'm navigating like dogs and bike paths. And, you know, it's a bit uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, don't I go know to bike. I run out in the bog. It's actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's it's just literally just on the road. But the. Um, is that dangerous? Like, would you not go into? No, because like a... it's just that the road be the road through ah, it. Okay. Like, it's quite a narrow yeah, road, yeah. but it's you know where where they cut the turf and all that. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, um, but it's it's very, you know, it's just flat, obviously, but it's it's very peaceful and like sometimes I'll, I'll listen to podcasts or sometimes I'll I'll just if it's spring I might listen to the birds kind of a thing. But it yeah, is yeah. very relaxing, um, and it takes your mind off other things and you know like uh, uh, what i like about running it's not the same as rowing i'm sure and, and and climbing and things because it there's nothing to think about you're literally one foot in front yeah. of the other so once you do the first few yards and you get into that that's gone and i think it can open other ways and you can maybe be creative or think about oh this idea or a song or something where you mm. i just like it yeah i, I get a lot from it yeah, yeah. But this I isn't my the, episode. This is your episode. <laughs> no, hang on. Man. This is getting interesting now. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I've. The uh, problem is, is like when you're running, you're listening to music. I used, to, I do, I do. I, I like to read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks, and I go through phases with audiobooks, like mm-hmm. where I can, I have to have a, a couple of different ones for different activities, like depending yeah. on my concentration and stuff like that. So running, yeah. I mean, the problem is. If you don't download them, I have Audible and all that stuff, but uh, sometimes you get ads and you're running and you're trying to yeah. turn the ads off or you don't want to, you know, yeah, or someone's ringing you or something. So maybe sometimes just to run without any devices to not be, you know, to have anything attached to you is a nice feeling and you're running them for the sake of of running. That that can be very nice. That's what's nice yeah. about climbing and what's nice about rowing. Well, with rowing, you can leave your phone in the boat and you probably won't capsize or anything. It's usually, I've never heard of that happening. But yeah, I mean, getting away from technology is just being outside. I much yeah. prefer countryside than than the city. City is functional, but you know, you need to be there to do a thing, but I much prefer outside. Um, yeah, absolutely. And anything that leads me outside, any activity that takes me outside, I'll, I'll do. 
um Good. i suppose but yeah i guess i do do a few things but uh maybe After i should do all, more you maybe, maybe should, should do more yeah you should be yeah i i i there is always the kind of the pull towards wanting to do more but you know it is obviously time consuming these things and to kind of mm-hmm. i started doing crosswords strangely enough um crosswords yeah, yeah just the new yorker online and you could just do one every day and um i, I my mom likes them i i never really got into them and now all of a sudden i'm like I can't wait for the crossword to come out that's age you see that's that is interesting though but uh do you find it i mean immediately now my my kind of uh i mean i would rather do that on the paper on the yeah, i would newspaper, yeah. with the pen and paper so i'd be almost like that doing it online would be anything that I, if I can get away from a computer, I would avoid, you know, I, I yeah, would. So I agree. Maybe that's something I would, but yeah, crosswords, man, that's interesting. I don't I know. Just want, it's, there's lots of things. There's lots the, of things you know, the, doing, like, the idea about the paper and the screen and, and that, that's a, a thing I've talked about before where like, I've just got books everywhere scattered around. And the problem is like mm-hmm. when I move and I will move eventually, that there's going to be a hell of a lot of trips Whereas, you know, I understand people who want to read uh, when they go traveling, they might have two books on their iPad or on their phone. Now, yeah. I've done that with guests coming up. So say say if it was yourself and you had a book and four days mm-hmm. ago I found out you're coming on, it's easy for me to just download it and read it there. And sure. But I but I don't like it. I, I honestly don't. You'd rather have the physical book. Oh, yeah, way more. You know, yeah. it's it's I, I like I write like short stories from time to time. Right. And it'll be pen and paper. Like it's not, it's never tight. Oh yeah. It's never, pen and paper. Okay. Okay. Have you looked into like, um, like using a typewriter or just, you really just prefer the pen and paper? No, like it's to... not that like I'll do the first draft on the pen and paper. And then if right. I want to, if someone wants to see it, but I do have a typewriter, but it's an electro- electronic, 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 <laughs> I got the word there, electronic <laughs> typewriter. And I didn't, I, there was, I wanted the, 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 the old school manual one, but this was, yeah. Yeah. And I, would yeah. And I, I actually kind of, it's weird. Let's trade typewriters. I got one or two that are the really old manual ones. Yeah. I prefer one of the early IBM. That's what mine, something like that. Yeah, this is <clears throat> this is kind of nice. I just, I think there's something efficient about it. I've tried typing. For me, it's just formatting. Yeah. Um, maybe this conversation, if, unless you're Tom Hanks, who I know has a collection of typewriters. He loves it. Yeah, he very, loves it. Very interesting. But yeah, I mean, like, I just, I really like that being close to the, to the thing. And in Hole in the Head, I had lots of these little, kind of cards and little script uh, private notes like an archive of memories that the character yeah. had made they're all type type yeah. printed like on a typewriter and um if there's even though they aren't even in the film any excuse to spend time hearing that sound i think he might that. be similar to wes anderson <laughs> you know you know i think he's quite hardcore though i think he's probably like yeah. you know, like inhaling the typewriter <laughs> ribbon or yeah whatever. he's he's a different um have you ever had that idea on on, on your films? Because there is the, the the discussion that he uses his dress sense to dress his characters. Like, you know, the the, the pants are too short. He always wears his pants yeah. too short. So other people in his films, his pants too short. Do you ever think of just going for your own look with everybody? You mean like? Anything you wear, just throw them on them. I, that's like for my own, like... Clothing. Yeah. I would just go right, John. You're wearing this. You're wearing that. And yeah. Like, no, I, I don't know. That would kind of terminate the the excitement of being able to dress the character. And I mean, yeah. if I'm already dressed in that way, I mean, I don't really, I don't dress in, interestingly. You know, no, I just wear black on black. I mean, even yeah. my underpants are black, man. Yeah, I mean, it's me like, too. <laughs> 
I, yeah, it would look like, you know, an early 90s beatnik kind of like <laughs> yeah. gathering or something in fucking Kerry or Carlo or something. Maybe that's what was where we shot it. So that's what it would have been like. Yeah, and I, I'm glad we got to dress them. And in some cases, using these like different items of clothing or, you know, even like, for example, working with James and we were, went through so many different types of spectacles. Um, that was such a sometimes the actor kind of requires this that as an inroad into the character. Yeah. How can I potentially chisel through this great kind of like impossible structure? And yeah. it's like a small thing like that can just do it. And I found with, with the clothing, when I was talking to them about clothing and it, that was the key to get them inside the thing and to get me into what their thoughts were on, on the character more so than just sitting down and going, right. Brainstorm. Yeah. You know, uh, what's her star sign and what's, you know, like, <laughs> Do what's your star sign? That's a great first yeah. question as well, isn't it? It's so yeah. it's so off putting when someone asks you what's your star sign is. It's like what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kill it, stone dead. But listen, Dean, like if someone wanted to find you and Instagram or wherever or look up your work sure. or whatever, where can they do so? They can find me on all the usual social medias. Um website deancabinet.com. Uh, the it, social media handle is usually Dean Kavanagh underscore at the ends. If you just, you'll generally, even if you don't want to find me, I'm probably there. Just like in real life. Yeah, um, well, me too. Just, I get you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm out there. So um, if you want to look at the other films and the films uh, that the cast and crew have made, it's all you know their their work. James's work. Um, James is a writer director and his mm-hmm. own. Uh, his own kind of career of of, of films and uh, Lynette uh, also and uh, and yeah I mean we uh, <clears throat> we worked with an amazing guy called Michael Higgins Michael was like I don't think we would have gotten through with all of the analog elements if it wasn't for his expertise and he's an exceptional uh, filmmaker experimental filmmaker working across like different formats and specifically film and and mm. and and video well specifically film um his work is well worth checking out so excellent yeah yeah look at that what a supportive director we have here but uh <laughs> dean you've been uh they'll hurt me they'll hurt me if <laughs> yeah. i don't give this information yeah so they'll hurt no no just D- dean yeah. you've been a, a brilliant guest if you wouldn't mind hanging around for two seconds i'll close cool. this out get a photo and and we're going away um i also have to thank as i always do john francis for his technical stuff not quite as technical stuff as dean doing sorry john it's not you're just putting something thanks john like that. um, yeah, that's hard that's hard to do it well yeah well i can't do it so i, I am having to go Fair ahead and um, uh, i have to thank my mom my dad my granddad Jaron calvin for the music and the logo uh youtube uh channel subscribe if you would um instagram facebook x i hate saying that uh spotify apple anchor google podcasts and all the other ones and uh thanks to everybody who watched and listened today and once again dean thanks very much Cool. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Eric. Uh, Derek. Derek. No worries. Actually, you know what? Here's a final thing. Um, I was thinking of uh, I when I when I was thinking of your, of your name, I was thinking of Bad Taste. Some of the Peter Jackson film. Yes. Yeah. What Derek's don't run. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Derek. Derek's don't run. So. Well, you, you know, it's better than Derek Davis because that's what people used to say to me when I was Derek. in the early '90s. Uh, that's how I remember the name Derek Davis. That's insulting. Um, no, I'm sure he's a nice man. All right, everybody. <laughs> Take care of yourselves and we'll chat to you next week. Bye.